What is the truth about the impact of coronavirus on business culture? The ancestors of Indo-European cultures believed that truth was like a tree. A tree stands firm, rooted to the ground. It may sway in the wind a bit, but it does not change its fundamental position in search of new opportunities. A tree endures. In fact, the words tree and endure come from the same Proto-Indo-European root word, deru, which was long ago used to refer to the quality of things that are steadfast. Other words that come from this root word are durable and trust in addition to truth. From this perspective, truth doesn't have to do with whether something is factually correct. Instead, it's something that holds true, even as circumstances change. It's not something that can be established with data analysis, because truth is not a matter of simple reality. From this perspective, truth is a metaphor. It's not a tree in a literal sense. Nonetheless, ancient wisdom holds that, yes, truth is a tree. Of course, ancient wisdom is just one perspective on truth. Another perspective holds that truth is something that is determined by rigorous scientific experiments to validate a successive series of hypotheses that become more accurate over time. Which version of the truth is true? Well, nobody has the power to settle this dispute. There is no central authority over language and ideas that can proclaim what words mean, not even the people at the Oxford English Dictionary. Linguists record the meanings that people give to words. They aren't the language police. That a steadfast word like truth has multiple meanings isn't a flaw of language. It's a function of human culture. People love the idea of double meanings. It's one of the most common ingredients in the joy of humor. People take delight in uncertainty when the context is right. When humans speak, they say more than one thing at a time. When humans act, they always have more than one motive with more than one outcome. Every word worth knowing has at least a double meaning. There is always more than just the way that it is. There are always alternative representations. While working with data requires accuracy, symbols require an embrace of ambiguity, showing us what is at once true and not true. Human truth is always more than just one thing. When we speak in symbols, we honor that ambiguity. When we reduce those symbols to bits of data, the clarity we create does not hold true. Welcome to the fourth episode of Beyond Back to Normal. 
The first episode discussed how people in business lack clear and adequate data about what's happening in the world. The second episode described the disorientation of business culture as the basic dimensions of time and space along which we organize our reality are becoming warped and divided. The third episode ended with the revelation of ritual as the cultural seat for symbolic play. This episode explores the symbolism of COVID-19 and what it reveals about what's at stake for business as the crisis continues. When we can't know what's real, when the marketplace melts and flows away, businesses cannot reasonably speak in the language of facts and figures. To navigate through the strange liminal experience that COVID-19 has thrust us all into, business needs to become fluent in a new language of symbols. A good place to begin is the grocery store. The grocery store was the original shop, the storefront that spawned all storefronts. Now the grocery store is the last business standing, an emblem of business in general. At the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, it was in grocery stores where the strangeness of life under COVID-19 first became evident. Grocery store employees have been celebrated as essential workers. Once at the periphery of the culture of commerce, they are suddenly recognized as being at the cultural core. Ralph Talmont of Boma International in Poland takes note of this shift in perception. The people at the supermarket where, you know, we go like once every, every fortnight, they're all, I mean, they must have absolutely amazing managers because they're all smiling, positive, polite, patient. So that is, it's an outstanding crew. It's not so much, I think, that they are representing it any more or less, but I think they are now viewed as essential life support infrastructure, as opposed to just something that you sort of swing by on the way home, you know, once or twice a week. The ethnographer Antonella Fabri shares her observations of the odd transformation of the grocery store experience as people began to realize how serious the pandemic would become. I live in New York, and uh, in terms of um, safety and uh, making people feel more roots and control, since the beginning, toilet paper disappeared. And um, what else? A flower disappeared. Eggs have gone up. The prices have gone up. Of course, the wipes. So people are getting ready to go almost like in, um, how do you call it, when uh, lethargy, um, when the squirrels uh, amass all the kind of nuts and supply for the winter because, you know, they want to live. I think it's a very animal kind of behavior. And what's interesting <laughs> is that our need goes into, um, it's expressed <laughs> Uh, on um, toilet paper. 
there was uh, somebody who got photographed. It's, it, it was a vignette. It was uh, like a humor caricature of somebody holding 12 rolls of toilet paper on their shoulders and posing in front of the cameras, like, you know, as if it were a, a big piece of jewelry or something that that person hunted, uh, you know, a big achievement anyway. It's almost become a luxury item and it, it talks about, oh, you know, I'm smarter than you. I really get prepared and uh, I have this and I can... Uh, uh, live without needing anything or going outside. Here's one truth that we tell ourselves about grocery stores. They're the place we go to get groceries, the basic necessities of life. Take a look at what's actually for sale on the shelves of a grocery store, though, and it should quickly become apparent that most of what's available there is not a basic necessity. Cookies and chips are not necessities. Beauty products are not necessities. As Edda Charmlicka of Joint Idea points out, not even toilet paper, the icon of panic buying in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, is truly a necessity. Well, one is survival, actually. What people are getting into their houses are their survival needs, supposedly, to their minds. But toilet paper, I truly don't understand. We all have bathrooms. There is a shower. Go in and wash yourself when you are doing your toilet, if you want to. I think it's the fear of not knowing how long this will take. They don't even know how much they might need during this time. Possibly they never thought about how much they consume. And buying all this stuff, for years, you might not be able to finish them. Toilet paper isn't something that we need to survive. It's an artifact of our culture, a choice of one particular way to take care of a physical need of cleanliness. The attachment to toilet paper that people have displayed, even to the point of hoarding during the COVID-19 crisis, isn't about the product itself. It's a symbolic seizure of an object that represents the basic values of our culture, reinforcing the belief that natural contaminants can be contained, controlled, and easily flushed away. Toilet paper is a condensed metaphorical assertion that in order to be clean, we must partake in a commercial exchange. Earning money and spending it on toilet paper is an entry-level requirement for membership in our society. The panic buying of toilet paper as a massive social shutdowns began was a symbolic recognition that the very survival of our commercial culture was in question and a statement of defiance in the face of the threat. Toilet paper doesn't protect against the COVID-19 virus in any literal sense. The coronavirus isn't a gastrointestinal disease. However, because of its function in cleaning away smelly, sticky filth, the possession of ample stocks of toilet paper has taken on a symbolic importance as a psychological protection from the dangers of the pandemic. Toilet paper isn't the only symbolic product available for purchase. 
Every item in the grocery store has a metaphorical dimension, helping us to maintain our identities. Each product stands for one aspect of the lives that we have constructed. With supply chains disrupted, the shelves of the grocery stores are not what they used to be. Weeks into the crisis, certain areas of these stores remain empty of products. The result, Ralph explains, is that consumers are undergoing substantial shifts in behavior. I just finished uh, uh, talking to a buddy of mine who runs an event production company. I've, been, I've worked with him for, you know, for 10 years, 11. And um, uh, he's saying the same things as, as pretty much everybody else, that uh, all of a sudden we are needing to slow down and we are finding this threatening on the one hand, but kind of refreshing on the other. I think from a business perspective, the first thing that will happen, it's already, I mean, it, now it's, it's happening because of the, the lockdowns and, and the impositions and the, the, the enhanced rigor and all that. But one thing that will happen is substantially shifted consumption patterns. People will cease to consume certain things, maybe for cultural reasons, maybe there will be things that you just don't do. They will take on consuming other things, not necessarily as a replacement, but perhaps if they do it consciously, as uh, maybe space to, to explore what else is important. Because I think there is a big, there's a you know, massive re-examination of that going on. Under COVID-19, old patterns of consumption cannot be maintained. Many stores that we are used to shopping in are no longer open. And even in those few stores that still have open doors, items we have taken for granted are now missing. Each one of these items is a metaphor for some aspect of our identities, a prop in the drama of our lives. So it is that as our brand loyalties shift and our rituals of consumption change, our sense of our identities and our purpose in life will also be transformed. As a result of widespread disruptions in business, our character is being tested as we are forced to reconsider what we want from the store and from life. At the same time, people are learning how to create social performances in a limited range of media. Although most people in business had used Zoom for professional meetings before, they had not relied upon Zoom as a primary means of communication. The new reliance on video conferencing as business professionals work from home has created a new range of professional identities. Anthropologist of business Robert Murray explains how the default stage for business meetings has been replaced with settings that often display a symbolic mosaic of a person's identity. The objects in a Zoom background communicate a great deal about the person in the foreground. Businesses like to think of themselves as very strategic. You know, everybody's, everybody's a strategist. 
And, and so businesses, when they think about changing themselves, organizational change, they think about vision and they think about mission and they do think about strategy. And now what's happened is everybody's thinking about tactics. There's no time for that. I imagine, you know, this is true of the, you know, the, the big consulting companies uh, or anybody advising in organizational culture, they would say, look, you have to step back. You've got to think about this. You've got to do the right research. You've got to do all the right things so that your vision is clear. Your mission is not only expressed uh, uh, within the small group of, of executives and managers of the business, but also communicated widely and, and, and effectively. Well, <laughs> that's gone, at least for now. What's happening is that things are being developed uh, on the fly. And this got me thinking also about an anthropological concept that, that you, you learn when you take an archaeology course, which is the, the phrase adaptive strategies. Uh, well, these are adaptive tactics. And the, the tactics are you know, as simple as, well, we're going to have this meeting via Zoom as opposed to a face-to-face -face meeting. We like to think that we see the 360 view. Uh, and what's happening is, I think, from a worker's perspective and from a corporate perspective, you're seeing the, the, the total worker more. Not only, you know, I've noticed, you know, you watch news reports and you're seeing everybody's living room. <laughs> you're getting a sense of their aesthetics. You know, you watch CNN or you watch uh, PBS or whatever, you know, NBC. You're watching any of And you're seeing, you know, what, not only what books they have on their shelves, but, you know, what color is their, uh, whether it's their wallpaper or their paint and their choice of furniture. We're making judgments about them as people that we would never have made before because we didn't have access. And I think the um, employees that have children that either may barge in or may change their hours or may change the way they engage, that's one thing that I think is very different. And I think it's actually a good thing. And I think it may stick, at least for a time. That is, the working from home movement was just simply, sure, work from home. But now it might be, not only are you working from home, but the, com the more complete person that we are working with, we are now able to access and see. And it's not just the person who may be a colleague in your own company, but it might be a client who doesn't know you that well, or even a new client. Yeah, I think this is, it, it certainly is a kind of signaling. It is curated and it, 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 it's purposeful. Those things behind me are in fact, it, what's interesting about it, it's twofold. On one hand, it's the space that I want in this room, right? Because this is my home office. Uh, it's also my son's old bedroom, but I don't want to show his bed. So this is not my natural spot for my computer. It's angled in a way to show certain things. So even though these are things that I want to show, uh, and and uh, you know, to you, they're they're not uh, they're the things that I look at actually to the left. Um, I am a guitar player. I have been I've been playing for as long as you've been alive. Actually, I've been playing for longer than you've been alive. And I do know a B-flat, but this guitar is a terrible guitar, which is why it's hanging on the wall in my office. It's called a Dan Electro. It's a piece of shit. It always had, they've always made a piece of shit guitars. My real guitars are downstairs. So this doesn't convey that I'm a serious guitar player, but that and that little piece of art show that I have a sense of irony, you know, and so on, because that's, that, that guitar is just sort of a reminder of, I'm, I'm left-handed, so I got that guitar. It was an opportunistic buy. Anyway. So yes, it conveys things, maybe it's storytelling. And I think for all of us, you know, if, if you were my client and I was getting to know you, you might ask me certain questions, I would ask more of you, we would deepen our relationship. And that's really good. So that broadening and deepening is possible 
at the same time that some of the core communication has become maybe a little more streamlined. People choose where to sit down to do a Zoom conference, and so, consciously or unconsciously, they are engaging in an act of symbolic storytelling about themselves with the objects in their backgrounds. This visual symbolism helps to counteract the narrowing of conversation that tends to happen over video conferencing platforms. The guitar I could see on the wall behind Robert as he and I talked on Zoom created an opening for a discussion of his personal life that might never have taken place if we had met in a conference room or at a neutral space such as a coffee shop. The reliance on video conferencing is requiring the invention of a new form of business presentation, and people in business are struggling to learn how to interpret these performances. Antonella Fabri questions whether the person we see on a Zoom conference is the same person we would see on a business conference stage. There is still this screen. I don't know how. And intimacy is sort of the opposite. It's breaking that little screen. It's almost being able to go behind the stage. It's a revelation of, you know, Goffman when he talks about, you know, you have the presentation of yourself as the presentation of yourself. You're dressed up and ready to go and um, brushed hair and whatever. And But behind the stage, it's probably a different person, not completely different, but, but a different person. You can see more. You can uh, get a little bit deeper in what the person is about. And it's what you see in the theater when you go behind the scene and you see the third stage. So I think it's the same thing with Zoom. Although you, you do see the mess of everyday life with, um, you know, when you exercise, for instance, and your stuff is around. And that it's revelatory of the person. But it's not enough to replace the face-to-face. The questions of identity that Antonella observes on video conferencing become even more complex when combined with the new performance of identity accomplished by wearing a mask in public places. Within a matter of weeks, the wearing of masks that obscure at least half the face has become an expected cultural practice. In many places, covering the face with a mask is now legally required. At first, medical doctors warned that masks would not protect us. Then, they warned that masks are absolutely essential protection. Now, I'm not qualified to judge the reality of the use of masks as literal shields of our health. But the quick reversal of medical advice on wearing masks suggests that there are some curious cultural factors at work. Mask wearing is not just a matter of public health. It also works as a form of symbolic play that simultaneously wards off invisible threats while making the people who wear them invisible to each other. We walk past each other now, 
unable to recognize friends and neighbors we've known for years, seeing only the masks that we wear. Philip Vostel, who studies cultural constructions of time, compares the widespread wearing of masks to the surreal tone of a story by Franz Kafka. But anyway, it's a bit of a Kafkaesque situation because the legal arrangement came into force in a moment when the, the you know all the masks in in stores well either the stores were closed where they sell masks or if they had some spare ones in a big mall so whatever they were all gone so it was like okay you need to wear a mask but where should where should i get the mask as philip points out Getting a mask has felt like a catch-22 in many places. Wearing a face mask has been required for anyone who wants to enter a store. But most people don't happen to have face masks at home. So how can they enter a store in order to buy a mask? A more tricky challenge created by the prevalence of face masks has been observed by techno-anthropologists Marcus Rothmuller. The mask is covering a face and you might not see that expression, but I actually wonder if, if not people try to force that expression out throughout, beyond that mask, you know, even though you have that mask, can you not see still that this expression is happening in their eyes when people smile at you, even though they have a mask on the face? Whether face masks effectively block the coronavirus is a matter of controversy. What's beyond argument, however, is that the masks block our facial expressions. Smiling has long been a standard part of business etiquette, but now our smiles are often hidden, replaced by a piece of fabric that remains forever blank, expressionless. The masks we wear in public are just one example of the way in which conventions of symbolic communication in business culture have been disrupted by the coronavirus crisis. This symbolic disruption has resulted in anxiety and social withdrawal for many. Others, however, have responded with a playful attitude of improvisation. Among those leaning into the improvisational approach has been Marcus Leto, co-founder of Love Mafia. He has a long history of using games as a medium for symbolic expression and contemplation. He specializes in particular in the game of backgammon. You know, even if there was a master plan, you know, the outcome is still so open to interpretation and open to question that, you know, it's this kind of dynamo that really has uh, no individual, it has the inability to be controlled, yet it's something that's touching all of us and we're all connected to it somehow and just the inability to fully comprehend it I suppose is the kind of um, thing that I personally find interesting I mean I, I like that kind of stuff you know the idea of going into something where there's no conclusion no kind of uh, foregone conclusion if you will uh, that for me is exciting well I think backgammon is um, you know, an amazing tool, you know, at all points of life, but especially now. So just talking about this idea of the kind of fixed mindset versus the growth mindset, you know, how do you actually cultivate that kind of way of looking at the world? And backgammon 
uh, for me has been truly an amazing tool to do precisely that. And in fact, you know, it's possibly the oldest, if we don't want to even say, okay, it's the oldest for sure. It's one of the oldest games in the world that has this kind of beautiful, um, I don't know, little riddle, little secret kind of built into it. And, you know, it, it's a kind of um, template for our duality in, in a sense. So you have these rules and you have, you know, a kind of mechanism by which you play this game. And when you open it, it's a kind of a time capsule. So you have you know, four corners, each of which represents one of the seasons. You have uh, 24 individual points on the board, which represent uh, the 24 hours of the day. Uh, you have 30 pieces and, you know, half of those are generally white and black. So night, you know, uh, daytime. And you might extend that to cover, you know, male, female, yin, yang, all kinds of different dualities built into our, into our three-dimensional existence, let's say. And you have 30 pieces representing the 30 days of the month, you know, divided between the players. So again, half of those are black, half of those are white. And it's this kind of idea of this duality, you know, again, mixing together through these different, through almost a calendar, if you want to look at it from that perspective. But the biggest uh, thing really is that, you know, if you look at the dice, you have a maximum roll of six, 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 six per person. So if you put that together, that's 24, right? So that would be your perfect day. So if everybody's just getting six, six all the time, I mean, you know, that's, uh, you might call that a perfect day. What actually happens is the game locks up after three moves if you do that, because that's not how our life works. You don't always have a perfect day. And it's the randomness of the dice, you know, uh, and how you then respond or react to that dice that you're getting. And I think that that's precisely what we're going through in this period right now. So if you get a 5-3, most people would play their 5-3 the way that, you know, their parents taught them to play or their uncles taught them to play or throughout the course of their life, they've just done it over and over and that's the way they play. But if you take a moment out to really consider that and to kind of use maybe your intuition and, you know, the kind of pace of the game and all kinds of different sensory uh, perceptions that you have around it, you may choose consciously to play another dice and just see where that goes. And if you're not focused precisely on winning, you know, as your core objective in the game, you can actually take an amazing pleasure out of that just to see what these different combinations actually result to over the course of time. And, you know, then you can never lose because you're just observing how your life, you know, or the game in that case is playing out. So if you can apply that also to your own life as the kind of observer of your own behaviors. And once you kind of pull out and zone out of yourself a bit to this kind of witness or observer position, you have this opportunity to respond versus react and kind of move out of this autopilot way of, uh, of behaving in the world. Before I met Marcus, I looked at backgammon as just a board game with simple rules. As Marcus explains it, though, the game has a tradition of deep symbolic meaning, his perspective was able to shift my perception of backgammon to a deeper level. This shift in itself is symbolic. It communicates in a figurative way that there is a deeper level of meaning in all kinds of human activities, including in business. Marcus explains that the richness of our business experiences and our ability to perceive patterns of opportunity can be enhanced through the cultivation of our abilities of symbolic interpretation. You know, we're kind of going through the motions of this and playing the game without really understanding what the real message is there. And that message, like I said, for me is one of, um, you know, look at life as the game of life. 
You know, it's not something that we should take really all that seriously. And we shouldn't look at it as a kind of opportunity for simply winning and losing. That if we lose, you know, somebody else, or if we win, somebody else has to lose. How do we look at that as a kind of positive sum game where we both benefit? You know, both players around, around that and engage in this game of life, you know, and use that kind of randomness of the dice as a kind of tool for us to practice responding versus reacting. And I think that that's really... The pleasure is, you know, playing for half an hour, you know, in somebody's presence where you're breathing in the same air and having this beautiful human experience that people have been having throughout the course of time. I can't think of another pastime or something that you can put into a box and move around with you that has that potential built into it. The conventional perspective in business culture is that work and play don't mix. When a person is doing business, they're supposed to be serious, tolerating no nonsense. Marcus Leto sees it differently. Play is a flexible frame of mind in which people are willing to accept alternative rules of conduct and work with imaginary characters and settings that no one believes are literally true. The game suggests let's pretend and playful mind plays along. Once again, the symbolic mind comes to the fore as the players accept a temporary truth that has nothing to do with factual reality. Well, I think play goes um, right down to how we learned, you know. So when we were kids, before we read, before we were, you know, learning the triple R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic, as they used to say, you know, we used to play. And, you know, it's through that process of unstructured play that we really learn about human interaction. And um, that's what we lose is we, you know, school ourselves. And then when we go into the workplace, we don't play anymore. We're just working and we're just, you know, executing tasks that have a structure and a purpose. But I, play really doesn't have a purpose apart from the fact that um, it's core to our humanity. And, you know, I guess maybe it's a realization that not everything we do has to have a kind of structure or purpose. Marcus laments the loss of play among the adults who constitute business culture. Business is full of games, but they're undertaken with a competitive spirit that aims for victory without taking joy in the process of play itself. The conventional business approach seeks to accomplish its goals as efficiently as possible, with as little nonsense as possible. It's a shame because symbolic play enables us to imagine alternatives that improve upon our minimally viable reality. Play of this sort isn't just what we do in games, it's also how we make music. Robert Murray, taking up the metaphor provided by the guitar on his home office wall, suggests that instead of working with rigid, predictive models, businesses could use the fluidity of coronavirus moments to learn to improvise, like jazz guitarists, with the standard form of the business meeting. I'm a blues rock guitarist, so um, and some bluegrass, but mostly blues rock. So a lot of what I do is improvisational. So improv improvising in other contexts comes naturally, and transposing musical improvisation to meeting improvisation is not as 
big a jump as you might think, because you're creating. You have to be able to create, you have to be able to create quickly. So blues is 12, 12 bars. A lot of blues is three chords. So one, four, five, 12 bars, blues, you're done. And it's a very tight structure. Sometimes it's 16 bars, but it's a very tight structure. There are variations on it, but if you're playing within that structure, what you can do is incredible things. That's an analog to meetings. A meeting is a structured experience, highly structured, highly ritualized. You come in for a certain period of time. Um, yes, the meeting can go longer, but if the meeting goes longer, it's like an improvisation or a jam session going longer. That must mean it's good. One thing that occurs to me is that I wonder if businesses, they could go in one of two directions. They be, could become more rigid because they want more control, or they could become more receptive to improvisation because they've been dealing without control and they've been responding more quickly to difficult situations and they realize that improvisation is really important. My guess is that you know, a lot of businesses are still gonna to wanna to stay on script if they're presenting to a client, but to the point of reading the room, going back to that, the idea of being able to improvise um, and respond immediately, think on your feet and so on, is valued usually among more senior people. That's, um, people can do that more. You know, it, to the extent that, you know, I, I talked about music being an analog, you know, the coronavirus and the response to the coronavirus is an analog for everything in the world right now, you know, when you think about it. I do think that probably, you know, a lot of businesses are reeling. Uh, it's one thing to figure out how you can work tech, uh, operationally, you know, do more Zooms or whatever it is. It's another thing to figure out, um, you know, how you're going to get your production, your supply chain, keep your supply chain intact. Um, and I'm sure a lot of them are thinking, they're saying, you know, you got to think more creatively. You know, they're saying to their people, um, we're, we're up against something we've never seen, at least not to this degree. So we need people that are going to think differently. And I would hope that, um, you know, in the same way that a lot of smart marketers and design specialists um, encourage cognitive diversity, that you would welcome people from different fields to attack a problem. Um, if I were giving business, businesses an advi advice right now, I would say if you're thinking about your supply chain, you should hire not only some anthropologists, but you should hire some psychologists and you should hire other kinds of social scientists as well as the usual suspects that you're gonna bring in and let them improvise. Have a session with them, have an ideation session with them where they're all talking about it and it's gonna be messy. It might be a three hour session in context like this and you know, you'll have a thousand terrible ideas. You, know, you only need a couple of good ones. What Robert describes sounds remarkably like natural selection. One strategy of biological adaptation is to allow improvisation on the genetic code with the creation of many offspring, understanding that many of them will die. Those that survive to play at life, however, are likely to have some kind of advantage, created at near random, but sophisticated nonetheless. Creative selection is the cultural counterpart to natural selection, in which the challenge is to come up with new ideas. Ideas never come out of nowhere, of course. What happens in the liminal experiences of disorientation, like what we're all going through now in COVID-19, is a kind of symbolic recombination. In genetic recombination, chromosomes split apart, with a random selection of genes shuffled back 
together into the gametes that may go ahead to contribute to new life. During the ritual process, participants encounter fundamental pieces of symbolic meaning that have been shuffled into strange new combinations from which new arrangements of meaning are created, just as a musician like Robert can improvise a new tune from a small collection of notes on a simple blues scale. In the liminal disorientation of our coronavirus world, the grocery store is one site of symbolic recombination, as the products on the shelves are reduced and redistributed in new ways, challenging shoppers to remake their homes and their lives from the available ingredients. More generally, businesses don't have the standard set of cultural practices to choose from. There will be no conferences, no site visits, no workshops, no in-person meetings of any kind. In their place, businesses need to compile an alternative set of remote interactions and arrange them together to create a sense of collective purpose. Peter Williams, Director of Business Treasury at City in Hong Kong, refers to the outcome of this sort of symbolic recombination as Productive Accidents, the title of his upcoming book. If you want to be innovative, you want to have good business development skills, you want to be a person that connects these unrelated industries and ideas. Uh, and so his phrase that basically the inspiration for my book was put yourself at risk of productive accidents. And so productive accident for me means, you know, you're just open to being invited to speak uh, to someone on the other side of the world and you're open to you know, continuing these conversations until you find something you both care about. And then the next step is you, you try to collaborate around that. You're already motivated because you care about it. The title of the book is going to be called Literally Productive Accidents, and the subtitle is A Playbook for Personal and Professional Adventure. Because I've kind of worked out that the formula for innovation and the formula for adventure are basically the same. My end goal is to make work and play to become indistinguishable. And when that happens, work evaporates, and it's all, you know, this adventure. Uh, and it sort of feels like it's getting closer to that. I can't predict where it's going to go. I just know something interesting is going to happen. You kind of, it gets down to this idea of, you know, put yourself at risk of productive accident and trust the process and you wait for the magic to happen. And it's become this repeatable, predictable uh, platform uh, or formula or framework or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it also, it, it becomes like a, a recipe for sustainable serendipity. Like, Interesting things keep on happening and you can't stop them. The strange thing about the symbolic recombination that takes place in liminal moments, such as the COVID-19 pandemic, is that they are full of meaning, but temporarily deprived of direction. There is no sense of direction, after all, in times like these, when time and space themselves are distorted, and the firm foundations of knowledge have been dissolved. As a result, the process of symbolic work can feel arbitrary 
as expressed by Mulsari Jain, founder of BAD for Good. The thing is that I have realized over time and time again, like the people that I respect the most or admire the most in business who've like made from zero to whatever, when you're actually sitting in the room with them and they're working and you know, it's like, I'm always amazed. I'm like, wow, you're just making shit up. <laughs> Everyone is always just making shit up, right? And it's just a matter of how, I mean, those of us who succeed are the ones who tell the story well who make it seem like we've got our stuff together, right? I mean, yeah. So if you're a good storyteller or if you're good at making, yeah. Basically, if you're good at evoking people's confidence in you, then that's, that's basically all it is, right? Like Mulsari says, stories begin in make-believe. People make up stories all the time and people in business are well known for their ability to make things up on the fly. Those with experience don't create nonsense, however, because they're creating stories out of the symbolic units of meaning that they've become familiar with. Not many of the stories told by people in business survive for long, of course. Those that remain are those that are told with craft, and those that match the cultural context in which they are shared. David Altschul, the founder of Character LLC, specializes in the craft of storytelling. He explains that the most effective strategy work in business is wrapped in the warm, fuzzy blanket of story, arranging relevant bits of cultural meaning in a way that lets people know which way to go. The vast majority of people who haven't stopped to think about it presume that story is the warm, fuzzy blanket of emotion you wrap around your strategy at the end <laughs> to try to give it some semblance of humanity. <laughs> mm -hmm. In the same way that the corporation has a semblance of being a person or the brand has a semblance of a personality. <laughs> That's not how we view it at all. We, we view story as... Uh, essential uh, component of the way uh, the brain has evolved to make sense of things and to deal with issues of great complexity. The tactics are way ahead of the strategy. And uh, story is a really good way of getting a handle on, as I said, you know, the meaning and purpose. Basically what happens when you get the story defined, uh, at least from a strategy point of view, is that it provides an organizing principle for everything. In the case of a retail brand, it's clearly not just the advertising. It starts with, you know, the retail environment. What do the stores look like? The merchandising, what arrangement, the, the relationship between the brands that they own and the brands that they're bringing in of other people's, their relationship with their employees, who are, after all, the frontline storytellers who are conveying the story to people who walk in. Even the idea of purpose is kind of, you know, metaphoric, because the literalists, the pragmatists would probably insist that, in fact, there is no purpose beyond increasing shareholder value and uh, everything else is window dressing. I don't actually believe that, and that is not my experience. I think the, uh, the trick is that purpose is what is manifest at the 
end of the sequence of values. And to unpack that, make it a little bit more clear, I would say that what you get at with story is meaning and purpose. And I think that the difficulty that a lot of large, particularly publicly owned corporations have had with purpose in recent years, in spite of all of the best intent to try to define a uh, elevated brand or company purpose, the difficulty that they've had is that there's a tendency to conflate meaning and purpose as if, you know, there was an ampersand in the middle and quote marks around it, and it was meaning and purpose. <laughs> kind of the way we used to deal with mission and vision, and most of us lay people could not figure out which one was which. In the world of story, meaning and purpose are closely related, but they're not the same thing. The meaning is what you believe, specifically what you believe about how to live in a world in which there are big conflicts that are by their nature not resolvable. The point is that the meaning of the story is essentially, I mean, what we like to call the universal human truth at the heart of a brand story, is that kernel of wisdom, that belief about a way to approach a conflict that you can't actually resolve. That's the meaning. The purpose is then what you go out in the world and do in order to manifest that meaning. And the reason that companies have difficulty with purpose is that so many of them go straight at the purpose without stopping to articulate what, you know, what the belief is. And if you're in a big public corporation where there is some misgiving about whether it's legitimate to have any purpose beyond shareholder value, then you will necessarily come up with some kind of shallow, fairly transparent statement of the purpose that sounds pretty much like every other one. We define story as a sequence of events that communicates meaning. And so if you understand your story well, then everything from what hours you stay open to how you price things to what you merchandise to uh, how you treat your employees to how your employees treat your customers to whether the store is clean or dirty to, I mean, all of that stuff is every, every one of those things is a bit that the audience takes in and they try to string all those bits together and see if there's a coherent meaning. So yeah, no, I don't think there's anything that you do that is uh, separate from your story. And uh, that's why I think of it as an organizing principle. It should give you some way of making choices of making decisions about everything from the most pragmatic to the most ethereal uh, so that in the end of the day, if you understand what you mean by making each of those moves, they're more likely to line up in a coherent way for your audience. We uh, like to point out that uh, in the world of story, everything is strategic in the sense that everything you do from the you know, name, design, product, pricing, merchandising, communications, everything that you do either adds to the clarity of the story, either leads your audience toward the meaning of the story. I shouldn't say adds to the clarity. Some of it may seem very confusing in the moment, but if your audience is paying attention, each of those things ultimately lines up. And at the end of the day, that whole string of experiences, events, communications 
seems meaningful because you intended the meaning. The symbolic work that we do in times of disorientation is a kind of play, but it isn't idle. As David puts it, story is a filter of meaning that gets us through confusing times, like the ones we're going through now with the challenges of the coronavirus pandemic. Storytelling is a ritualized process of making sense out of nonsense, lining up symbolic elements from the cultural context in which we do business in a way that reminds us of the meaning of our choices. We are improvising, and when improvising is done well, it's an appreciative act. It accepts what is taking place and chooses to look at the terms of reality as an offer, even if the offer is kind of weird. Instead of protesting against the weirdness of the situation, the improvisational mind asks what could be developed in the unusual context. In this way, the period of symbolic improvisation that we're going through during the COVID-19 shutdowns provides businesses an opportunity for a renewal of clarity, a recommitment to fundamental purpose. People in business have an unusual sort of permission to play right now, because everyone accepts that conditions are a little bit out of control. To do this work with symbolism, however, requires us to be immersed in the meaning of what's happening. Improvisation directs us to pay attention, and we've got to be present in the cultural struggle to grasp what it's all about. The obvious difficulty for this effort in the time of coronavirus is that hardly anyone is present in business these days. We're too busy practicing social distancing. Next week's episode of Beyond Back to Normal considers this dilemma of presence and distance and what it has to teach us about the culture of business. Thank you for listening to this fourth episode of Beyond Back to Normal. Quite soon, you will be able to find a transcript of this episode on the websites beyondbacktonormal.com and businessinthetimeofcoronavirus.com. The music that you hear opening and closing each episode is a song called Corona Norco from the 2010 album To the Dust, From Man You Came and To Man You Shall Return by the instrumental duo Charles Atlas. Chin up. Stay well. <laughs>